Welcome, and thanks for joining us at the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. In this series, we discover that God has provided everything we need for life and godliness. Based in 2 Peter 1, we will explore God's invitation to participate in His divine nature in ways that we can cultivate a fullness of life. Here's today's message. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Camille, for reading that uh, wonderful passage of scripture, right? First time you've, you've read that one, I'm sure. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, just as we uh, open God's word, let me just uh, take a moment and uh, ask that God would guide this time. Would you just please bow your heads with me for a moment as we pray? Father, this is a treasure, your word to us, a gift. And so, Father, I pray that each of us would uh, treat this uh, gift as it deserves. We would be attentive. Uh, we would be careful. We would be uh, listening to your spirit. Speak, Lord, uh, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Everything we need right? That's the nature of this message. That was the intention of this series in 1 Peter chapter 1. Really, it extends then beyond uh, just 2 Peter. Really, any, any message that we hear, any sermon, any book that we read, any chapter, any conversation that we have, that we feel a sense of conviction to do something, to be a follower of Jesus, we can conclude we've got everything we need to do that. As God invites us, asks us to follow him, to honor him, he says, here you go. You've got everything you need 
to do just that. Today we come to the end of the list of virtues in Peter's final testament, this section of scripture from 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 11. As you've heard now for a couple weeks, this list is a summation of the kind of life for which we have just that, everything we need. We've sort of been characterizing it, we've just been calling it for shorthand purposes, a godly life. But really, it's however you want to construe what it means to follow Jesus, a Christ follower, a Christian, whatever we want to call, this is the intent. This is what I think Peter is trying to communicate to us, that we have everything we need to do just that. And it's a gift from God by his grace. This grace-endowed life begins with faith. Right, the necessary entry point, our confession that Jesus Christ alone is Lord. The ground where the rest, then, of these virtues are to be cultivated. The results, then, now as we get to the end of this list, the results, then, right, when everything is put together, when faith is there and all of this is cultivated it's like this flowering plant this tree that blooms and what blooms then is agape when everything is active and growing agape is the result and that's part of how i think this list is constructed we have these two Uh, bookends. We have faith, that is the necessary beginning, and we have agape, which is the fruition, the ultimate, as we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, the greatest. I think that's what Peter is implying here as well, putting it at the end. It's in a place of prominence, of emphasis, agape. Where there is faith, There is the accompanying endowment from God that includes the ability then to produce, as we have learned, goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, mutual affection. This list reflects the godly life, as we've been saying and trying to encourage throughout this summer, not only anticipated, not only described in 1 Peter, but anticipated and expected throughout the New Testament. This is the life that Jesus promised and made possible through his death, resurrection, and ascension. This is why we're here. Now, to be clear, I want to clarify, and and we're going to kind of get into a little bit of a tug-of-war, I think, probably you and I here throughout this morning, because some of you, I'm going to drive you crazy, because I'm not going to actually say love much. I'm going to say agape. And the reason is, I think, because whenever, if we just simply say we love God or we love other people, we often will uh, bring in our own kind of... um, Uh, sensibilities when it comes to love and and in particular things if we're struggling with anything or if we're working through stuff we will automatically our minds and hearts will be kind of oriented towards that kind of love last week we talked about a kind of love Philadelphia we referred it referred to it as mutual affection 
This is the love specifically to within the body of Christ. But as we know, or hopefully we know by now, and, and, and most of you are anticipating this already, agape is that which gives kind of energy to all the other kinds of love. And in fact, it gives the energy to all kinds of activity as a follower of Jesus. And as many of you know, you, and will be reminded today, agape is not just to be um, pre- present here, but it actually compels us beyond these walls into our community, workplace, school, sports fields, coffee shops. I'm confident that, I sort of joked about it earlier, that we've all heard multiple sermons on agape, right? We've read many pages on the topic. And I'm sure we've discussed it, maybe ad nauseum with each other over the years. It's everywhere. Here I am, prepared once again to preach a sermon to you about something that you're already likely, I know this for a fact, already likely anticipating some of my points. Corey started our service by saying, we're here because we love God and love people, right? That's agape. That's the heart of it. I'll talk more about that in in a moment. But we know where we're going. But let me just say this. In case you're unsure, I want to explain why I think this isn't the first time someone at Central has preached on agape and why it won't be the last. Or why, even if you attend another Christian church in Victoria or worldwide, you will hear sermons on this topic. Simply put, it's because, how it, because of how it's framed in Scripture. And that, in turn, can be simplified with one phrase. This phrase found in where? You probably know, right? 1 John 4, 8. What am I going to say? I'm going to fool you. Hotheos agape estin. Just use a different language. God is agape. That's why it's so important. Out of all the possible ways of being described, God inspired John to declare that his very nature is agape. Now, let's be clear, he's not identical to agape. In other words, as if there are two things, God's here, agape's here, and God says, you know this other thing over here, that's what I'm like. No, no, no. When scripture declares that that God is agape, he means that his very nature is what gives definition, meaning, purpose, substance to this concept. He is the one that defines all of this. And that's why it's important. This is his character. This is his nature. Why all of us need to come to terms with it and continue to wrestle with it, sermon after sermon, book after book, conversation after conversation. Because it is through this that we are demonstrating to each other in our families, in our friendship groups, at school, on the sports fields, and in our community, who God is. Today, I want to go over what we mean when we discuss agape, how we know when we're agape-ing, and how to begin. 
And as I said, I'm using agape on purpose because we only have one English word to cover a couple of related but different biblical concepts. And I want to be clear that we are talking today about agape. So let's go back and let's look at this incredible chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But as we do that, and I didn't have it read, it could have been, but I want you to notice if you have your Bibles or your device just flip over or scroll down or whatever or up, and notice how Paul introduces this. 1 Corinthians 12, right at the very end. This whole section that we know as 1 Corinthians 12 is Paul helping us come to terms with, help the Christian church come to terms with the work of the Holy Spirit in our community. That the Holy Spirit is going to inspire and instigate some activities that are meant to, through actually, through each individual participant, through each individual part of the Christian community, that's going to be used to build up the body, to build up the church. And that was the section that we know as 1 Corinthians 12. Then at the very end, though, Paul says, he kind of pauses. He sort of interrupts his explanation by saying something like this. This is all good and important, but before I say anything more about this, and he does, he picks it up again in 1 Corinthians 14, but he says, before I say anything more, let me describe to you an even more excellent way. This is the excellent way. Agape is the more excellent way. All right, so let's look at this. In 1 Corinthians 12, let's look at agape, and let's think of it then as Paul uh, introduced it at the end of 1 Corinthians 12 as a more excellent way. All right, Paul organizes this chapter into three parts. He addresses each piece passionately, artistically, and with deep conviction to clarify how vital agape is to the Christian life. He begins then by explaining in verses 1, 2, and 3 that agape is what substantiates Christian ministry. I wrestled with this a little bit because I'm not sure if substantiates actually is a strong enough term for what Paul communicates here. Maybe justifies. Paul lists, if you look at verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul lists several awe-inspiring activities. The miraculous speaking in tongues of humans and angels, or angels. Speaking in tongues of angels. The understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge. Who wouldn't like to be defined as someone who understands the mysteries of all knowledge? The ability to move mountains, right? Isn't that what we long for as followers of Jesus? A faith that moves mountains. A faith that inspires and that the Holy Spirit uses to transform our communities, right? Amazing things. He mentions giving away everything for the sake of the poor. Paul says this, all of that, all of it, if there is no agape, 
it doesn't matter at all. Wow. That's a way to introduce the importance of a subject. Of, of poking and prodding at the very heart and mind of the church, of the Christian community, and say all those things that we tend to chase after, if it's not, if they're not accompanied by agape, they are nothing. Wow. That's why I wondered if substantiates isn't a strong enough term. Maybe if I state it negatively, it might communicate the proper gravitas. The absence of agape in a Christian community completely nullifies ministry. We must recognize that it's not just what we are gifted to do as followers of Jesus. That's important, right? Paul says that, it's important, don't get me wrong. He spends two chapters, right? He bookends two chapters with this discussion of agape. This is important, but it's not just what we do as followers of Jesus but how we do it and why we do it. Those are the first three verses, right? I mean, that's plenty to work with. And maybe that's where we need to spend and maybe that's what God's Spirit is convicting you about right now as individuals. And if that's the case, spend some time there. Think about this. Claim, Paul says, it's so important that we agape as a Christian community. But in Paul's second section, verses four to seven, Paul explains that agape is that which acts. Small a, uh, that which acts. That is action. The second section provides a detailed description of what agape does and doesn't do. And actually, today I'm just going to leave you to evaluate your life against the specifics noted here because what I really want to do today is stress to you that essentially agape is a work. It's an action. Agape is not an emotion, a disposition, an intention, a value, a commitment, or anything else other than action that tempts us to presume that we are experiencing agape. Each of these characteristics that Paul lists is a process word. In other words, it's best to understand the description, descriptive terms as verbs. For instance, love is patient-ing. Love is kind-ing. That is doing the action that demonstrates what patience is. It's not just a sort of sitting there or standing there and saying, all right, God, I got to feel patient. I got to feel more patience. It means we're acting in a way that demonstrates that we are being patient with other people, no matter how frustrating that we get, etc. The point here is that while you might feel kind towards another or patient towards another, it's only agape when we act on it. And this is how human nature can distort what God is asking us to do. He's not merely asking by asking us, inviting us to agape. He's not merely asking us to think kind thoughts or think nice thoughts about other people 
or want to be patient or want to be kind, etc. It is only agape when we act on it. He has sent his spirit to indwell us, to empower us, not to feel good things, but to act in ways that demonstrate this. Now, to sort of bring this point home, that agape essentially and necessarily is an action, I want you to notice in scripture, I'm gonna take you to places that you've already, familiar places, as with most of what agape is, but in order to drive this home, that it's an action, I want, you to, I want us to remember that God has, in relation to our uh, activity, our agapeing, he's actually giving us, given us a command to do it. And not only has he given us a command, but he's declared that the greatest um, evidence or the greatest um, example of this is an act. So we'll talk about what that act is in just a moment, but you already know what I'm gonna be saying with this as well, right? The command is found in Matthew, Mark, Luke in two parts. What are they? Agape God with all that we have and agape your neighbor as yourself. You remember the scene, right? Jesus is asked, about what is the greatest commandment in scripture, and he concludes this. Everything else, the law and the prophets, everything that God has communicated up until this point can be summarized with this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the command. To act. To love. To demonstrate our agapeing of God, our agapeing of our neighbor. As a command then, agape entails a duty. We have, as followers of Jesus, the responsibility to agape God unconditionally and our neighbor conditionally as ourselves. Our agape for God is unconditional because our relationship with him cannot generate contradictions. What God desires is necessary and sufficient despite what we might want because he is God. However, in our relationship with our neighbor, the possibility of contradiction exists. My agape, or what I think is agapeing my neighbor, can be met with a contradictory experience. Maybe some of you have experienced this in the past. We can be confronted by the neighbor attempting to redefine what agape is, or acting in such a way that communicates, I'll only accept this as agape from you if it meets my desires, and vice versa. But that's not at the heart of agape, as we'll see in just a moment. Because we can kind of clarify what we mean by agape by looking at the example. This example is summarized for us nicely in Romans 5 and Ephesians 5. We learn that God himself didn't just command it, but he demonstrated it himself. What is that great demonstration? We know this, right? He sent his son and his son came willingly, and he sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. We know then that God agapes us through the act of Christ on the cross. This act shows that agape is self-sacrificial, 
undifferentiating or enemy embracing and divinely defined. Agape transcends our selfishness. The self is sacrificed. Our preferences, it doesn't matter who's standing in front of you and our desires, God alone knows what's best for us. This is the kind of action that qualifies as agape. In addition then to substantiating all our actions as a Christian community, agape is only present in works. These are the first two sections of 1 Corinthians 13. The concluding section then of this chapter affirms that agape is just what it's set out to be or to demonstrate, that it is the most excellent way or the greatest of being, of existing, any being. That is to say, agape is eternal and supreme. And again, this is what I think Peter was trying to communicate by placing agape at the end of his list. This is the fruition. This is the excellence of the Christian life in how we act towards God unconditionally and to our neighbor conditioned then by God's nature. Self-sacrificing, undifferentiating, and divinely purposed. Now, God has given us more insight, actually, than just 1 Corinthians 13. Because God knows we need all the insight we can get and all the help we can get when it comes to this uh, magnificent idea. In addition to describing what it is, Scripture also provides us insight into how we know when we are agape So let's talk about this for a minute. How do we know? How do we know, can we know, that my actions toward another is, satisfies the conditions for agape? Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to boil this down to one concept that I'm going to illustrate with two foreign words. The concept, then, in English is upbuilding or building up. The act of agape, simply stated, builds the other person up. This is not the same as making them feel good, right, as we know, because sometimes a good action, a necessary action, has to cause a bit of pain. In order to build us, in order to encourage us, in order to help shape us into who God has made us to be. So the first foreign word is the word that we find in the Greek manuscripts of our English Bible. The word is... uh, Oikodomeo, which is building up. Now, early in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul states unambiguously that uh, uh, agape builds up. So this is simply an illustration, if you've ever done this before, of building a house, of building a, a place to live, a dwelling place that is comfortable, that meets needs, that, that is uh, helpful to you or to another person. 
right? The, the structure itself of the outside can have all kinds of uh, differences and distinctions, right? But there has to be a strong foundation, no matter how it looks above. And so this is the idea that we see in, in most of the times we see this, this uh, agape builds up, is that agape is something that helps a person construct the house of their life. Right, or as Jesus um, mentioned in the parable, right, to build a house, not only that, that the structure is there, but also on the foundation that is firm. The implication is that agape encourages a person towards a godly life. This is what we're trying to do this summer. A godly life that is full of goodness, knowledge, self-control, endurance, godliness, mutual affection. Put another way, agape acts to remind us that life does not consist of anything else. Real life doesn't consist of anything else, uh, such as, for example, the abundance of possessions. Agape seeks to build a solid house, a solid life, on a solid foundation. The second foreign word is actually a Maori word. Maori are the indigenous people grouped to the land we now know as New Zealand. Michelle, Olivia, our youngest daughter, and I lived in New Zealand for about two and a half years while I worked on my doctorate. We had the opportunity to learn many Maori words while we were there because the indigenous culture is much more prevalent, accepted, and integrated compared to Canada. I came across a term I want to use to illustrate how we know we are agapeing about a year into our time there. And actually, it wasn't, it's not even related to my research, but it was the result of working on the board of the school that Olivia attended. Instead of, the system's a little bit different there in New Zealand. Instead of having one board that oversees a district, a bunch of other schools, each school has its own board. And I'd been volunteering for the, uh, the year up until that point as a volleyball coach and I guess made a good enough impression that they invited me to run, run for school board. So I ran a political campaign. Who knew? It wasn't much of a campaign. It was, anyway, I'll talk, I can talk about that another time. Anyway, I was successful and served for the remaining time we lived in, the, in that country. Okay, to the point here. One of the activities we did as a board is to review review the school's vision and values. The document included both English and Maori language terms. Now, one of the values of the school is the term I want to use as an illustration. Mana akitanga. That's the Maori word. Formally, this term means acting to nurture well-being and belonging. Sounds great, right? Welcoming and looking after guests by offering hospitality, generosity, and mutual respect. However, during one of our board discussions, a native Maori speaker explained that Maneakitanga describes acting towards another in a way, and this is what I like about it, in a way that fluffs them up fluffs them up. Now, to fully appreciate this explanation, you need to know that this school is an all-girls school that, like most schools in New Zealand, required its students to wear a uniform. 
our school's uniform included a kilt, a nod to the Scottish heritage of the main European settlers. The board member explained that the term is acting towards someone like going to them and fluffing up their skirts so that it looks better. You've seen this maybe in wedding ceremonies, right? When the maid of honor or someone comes and readjusts the, the bride's train or the gown or whatever to make it look better. I loved that illustration, that explanation. Right away, thinking about this notion of, of upbuilding, this, this whole, uh, one of the examples or ways that we know that we're agoping somebody when we're building them up. And in this case, we're helping them to demonstrate their life in Christ better. Agape uh, is, is then like going up to a person and straightening them, out, straightening them out so that they live better. Agape fluffs up another. Building them up or fluffing them up, both illustrations demonstrate agape's other-focused, self-sacrificing, undifferentiating, and God-defined nature. As we close today, and I'm going to invite our music team back up, let's spend our final moments getting even more focused. See, one of the problems that we have with a concept like agape is it sounds foreign because we're using a, a foreign word. It also, one of the challenges is that it can be presented in a way that is so overwhelming to us, Right? Man, where do I begin? There's just so much there every time, right? Don't you feel that? Anytime you have a conversation about how to love God with everything we have, how to love our neighbor as, as, as ourself, how to sacrifice, how to, how to uh, love no matter who's in front of you, right? That just sounds overwhelming and can be. I noted that Jesus points out that agape's objects are God and the neighbor. Setting aside the complexities of agape and God for today, I want to offer two ways to make this practical. To avoid this sense of being overwhelmed. We have to resist the overwhelming nature of agape because, remember, we're commanded. This is the nature of God. This is the communicating that God exists to the world around us. And scripture also tells us that if we do not agape, we don't know God. Let me make two small, but I think profound suggestions that I've come across in my reading. First one is this. In his, books, in his book, Works of Love, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Christian thinker, suggests who we should agape. He writes this. At a distance, all recognize the neighbor. God alone knows how many there are who recognize him in actuality. That is close at hand. Here's Soren's suggestion then. You want to start to agape. Who do you identify? He says this. The first person you encounter. That's the best example of a neighbor. The next person that you encounter, that is your neighbor. That's where you begin. 
Start with the next person. Don't start with all the groups and, and everything and all the possibilities. Start with that one person. The very next person that you encounter, the very next person that you have a conversation with, begin there in that relationship. It could be a spouse. It could be a roommate. It could be a friend. It could be a coworker. And then, and then the next one after that. And then the next one after that, right? The first one is best, according to Soren. I like that. Then the second piece is from a book called The Furious Longing of God by Brennan Manning. In this book, he, Brennan, if, if you know his writing, he often writes with a, a real raw style in communicating faith, and faith matters. And uh, at one point, he is expressing this frustration. And he says this, if I was to actually, if I could do everything all over again, I would simply do the next thing in love. The next person, the next thing. That's where we begin. That's how we get going. That's how we agape, that's how our agapeing can lead to a transformation here and a transformation there. The next thing and the next one. And then the next thing and the next one. That's the cycle of agape. Now again, the Bible concludes that there is no greater love than sacrificial love than agape love. And there is no more significant, significant demonstration of agape than the act of Jesus' sacrifice for us. And that is our guide. That is why Paul could write to the Corinthians that the love of Christ, Christ's love demonstrated for us that love, agape, that love, that agape compels him. Does it compel us? We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. 